welcome back everybody for another episode of Discovering What's Inside. I'm actually live in person with Mr. DeAndre Carter. Have a room full of guests interested. Someone's actually coming in as we speak, literally. Uh, they're interested in hearing about the new book that he is getting ready to release called Demand Greatness. Now, before I hand over to DeAndre Carter, I want to let the listeners know, the audience as well, how I met DeAndre, which I don't even know if you remember this. Uh, I was, I'm from Detroit. The listeners know that already, but for you all, I was going to Michigan State. I got admitted through a program called Magic, and I was, uh, you know, we had all these different activities that we were doing, and, you know, a bunch of stuff that was kind of like, oh, this is wasting my time, but one session I really liked, it was the Diamond Time yeah. session, led by DeAndre Carter, so I remember this like it was yesterday, it was just, the only thing that whole weekend I think that really resonated, really helped change me, really had me excited about college was that, and uh, ever since then, I really kind of just followed DeAndre, you know, just watching what he does and how he maneuvers. And I've, you know, been a big fan of his messages. I think a lot of them have changed my life. And um, I'm so excited to see that you're getting this out to an even wider audience. I mean, all my friends in Michigan State know DeAndre because he's done so much on that campus and has advised so many people. So to just be here to interview you, to see this uh, book, to get the preview and read it, I'm excited, I'm humbled, and I'm also inspired. Um, you're inspiring me. I try to inspire other people, but you're someone who inspires me. So I'm excited to be that. here and um, can't wait to let everyone know the story. So enough of me talking. First, first question I always like to ask any of my guests is, how did you get here at this very point here at Whole Foods in Detroit, by the way? How did you get here at this very point to have this room and people coming out to hear you? How did you get to this point? Well, I got to this point mainly through other people responding to the messages that I've been sharing. I, I have a lot of thoughts and ideas that I, I use for my own personal life and it hit me one day that the more I share them and the more I share them in depth it actually impacts other people's lives they can relate it resonates with them that they can connect to some of the messages and so uh, and, and, and I'm at that point that life is about times and seasons and I'm at that point where I believe it's my time to get this message out not just in the Michigan State community where it's renowned but all over the state of Michigan, all over the Midwest, all over the country, and literally all over the world. That I grew up as an urban kid with global dreams, and now is that moment in time where I demand my position in that scope, in that frame. I like that, I like that. And you know, that's so true. As I was reading the, the preview, it gave me so much insight to just how you think. And yeah. I was like, man, this dude is so deep. Like, I mean, not only are the messages good, but if you look at just the words and how he's taking the time to really break things down, he tells a very thoughtful, not just something he just put out just to say he got a book, you know, but really something like, you know what, here's what I learned from my own life, from advising others, and I'm putting out there for the world to benefit from it. So that was one of the things I really just was like, wow, this is, I had to like sit down and, you know, really indulge in it, you know what I mean? Like I couldn't just yeah. skim through it because it was really like that deep. So it was I love great. hearing that. That, yeah. that. That's what I do it for. I When I put, you know, just like you said, just to have a book out, I started something at Michigan State, and this was something I did for three and a half years where I sent out a motivational message, two paragraphs long, every single day for three and a half years. It was called Food for Thought, Two Minutes That Will Change Your Day. Now, of course, in this day and age, two minutes is two minutes too long for most people in the Instagram age where your videos can only be 15 seconds and your minds are only seven seconds. But when email first came out, two minutes was, was, all, it was, it was pretty good. And if I wanted to have a book out, I could have just compiled all those messages, threw a book together and given it to somebody and given it to a publisher and, you know, turned it into a cow. I could have done that. But um, 
as we'll get into later in the podcast, there was something very significant. There was a very significant person that really put the idea in my mind that I need to write a book and I need to write it not from the perspective of being able to have a book out, from, but from the perspective of being able to change lives. Mm. Cool, man. Something that stuck out to me, I'm always um, interested in knowing who shapes lives, who changed lives. And as you kind of get into some of that in the book, give mm-hmm. me some insight I didn't have. And one person you mentioned at the very beginning is Dr. Carl Taylor. Yes. And you told a pretty funny story about how you <laughs> went to a, um, a, a screening for some other purposes, but he ended up really changing your outlook. Can you talk about what Dr. Taylor did for you? Definitely. And I, uh, if you know me and um, introducing you to myself, uh, I grew up in the 90s, and one of the movies that came out during that time was Menace to Society. And all of my friends in, in my neighborhood, we related to that book, be, or that, that movie, rather, because the vernacular, the tonation, the events that happened, everything was related. We felt like that when we cut the movie off and walked outside, we would hear somebody that would talk like that. We would see somebody that thought like that. So that was a movie that I loved watching. And so I was in Michigan State, and I saw a screening for Minister Society, and I thought, oh, that, that's interesting. I might go. And you know how it is in life. Maybe's turn into for sure is when other people get involved. And so I would love to say it was Dr. Taylor, <laughs> but uh, it did, it, instead it was an attractive undergrad who was like, hey, DeAndre, have you heard about this Minister Society screening? I'm going to be there. And at that point, I made up my mind <laughs> that I will be there as well. There's no reason not to. Right, right. She'll be there. The movie will be yeah. showing. It, it was like a win-win. And so um, that was the story. But that's what I mean, that life, there are moments. There are moments that shape everything. So I went there, you know, because of the movie or because of, you know, uh, a certain individual. But when I met Dr. Taylor and he opened up a forum and said, you know, we like to talk about the impact of this movie. And, and I got a chance to begin to speak. He said something to me that still is stuck with me to this day. And that was over 15 years ago. He said, number one, he thought he just assumed I came from a two parent household. because I'm a well-spoken black man, sophomore in college. Uh, articulating my points clearly, um, disagreeing without being disagreeable, uh, all of those things. He thought that, you know, I come from, you know, good money. Uh, (laughs) The way I grew up, good money was anything more than zero. (laughs) That was good money. So, uh, you know, so I was was not lining up with the impression that I was giving off. And and when when he found out about my background, inner city kid, no dad in the home, father was in prison, um, you know, grew up in poverty, went to DPS, which edu- is educationally challenged. That's bad when your school system is educationally <laughs> challenged, but that's that's where it was. But I was able to overcome those odds. He said, for every one kid like you, there are 30 that need to hear how you did it. 30 that need to hear why you made the right choices or some of the decisions you made. Uh, and so that was a moment that changed everything. Wow. Now, again, that was 15 years ago. You said, what took you so long? Because at that point, I had a story to tell, but I didn't have a message to give. I was living my life trying to do what it was for me. I didn't understand the impact I could have on others. And it wasn't until I, I grew and matured and understood that the lessons I'm learning need to be shared because they can help someone else too. Wow, that's powerful, that's powerful. Um, the book, Demand Greatness, you've taken life and broken into four phases. Yes. And I told you, I said, man, like, how'd you come up with that? Like, you know, <laughs> how do you just look at life and be able to break it down so that it's not just applicable to your life, but I can look at it and say, oh, wow, I can remember when I was at that point, or I can see mm-hmm. myself here. How did you come up with those four phases? And, and, and briefly give the listeners 
uh, you know, overview of what those phases are. Definitely. Uh, to piggyback, when when uh, Dr. Taylor encouraged me to write a book, I started sitting down trying to write a book, and I tried. I did what most people do. You you look to see what's out there, and you try to re- reproduce it. So I went and I grabbed books by Les Brown and Zig Ziglar and these guys, and then I tried to write my version of it. And it wasn't working. I, I'll never forget one day I contacted Dr. Taylor. He invited me over to his home and I said, I, I read Richard Wright, Black Boy. I read all these other books. I was, I'm was i trying to find a writing style. I read books that I liked and I tried to reproduce. He said, don't, he's like, you're writing a book. He said, don't read other books. Just write your book. Just write your book. And that really helped me. And so I began, as I sat down and began to write my book, I didn't, I, it, I always say this. I didn't sit down and decide this is what my book is going to look like. I sat down and discovered what my book was going to look like. I was inspired. I would sit down. When I sat down to the computer, it was almost like an event for me to see what's going to come next. And so I showed up to my computer and my keyboard and I asked questions like, okay, why do good things happen? I mean, why do bad things happen to good people? Or, okay, you go through a life event. What, what is it that you need to do to come... These were questions I would have in my own life. And so what I did is I looked at my own life, I looked at other success stories, and I, I engaged in, in prayer, and these ideas began to come to me. Because, the, again, the initial book was going to be 10 chapters, and each one was going to represent a, a principle, you know, attitude or persistence. And that's so cliche in self-help. But this one came to me differently, you know, um, and listening to others, other people. Uh, talk about success yeah. and I couldn't relate sometimes I'm not gonna share a name but there's a very famous thought leader who has great books out I really like listening to him and he talked about starting his business and he was like man one time I was so so uh, uh, broke or I was so in poverty that um, I only had enough money to go to Kinko's and get 50 copies to talk about my event I said wait <laughs> <laughs> so broke it means something differently where I come from Cause you usually able to go to Kinko's and get like I know people who are so broke that they don't think about Kinko's. Right. You know, they yep. think about what what today's generation calls the plug, or what we call the hookup. Like you didn't have the financial means. So I started to recognize that in order to become successful, that the next step depends on your current destination. That if somebody called you right now, Chris, and said, "Hey, I'm I'm trying to make it over to the Whole Foods. I need directions. What's the first question that you're going to ask them?" Where you at? Where are you? So many times in life, we're looking to become successful. And then you have the self-help or the, the professional experts or gurus saying, this is what you need to do. But on a one-on-one basis, I can't tell you where to go if I don't know where you're at. And, and I feel like there have not been enough authors, not been enough stories to talk about how does the kid that's financially disadvantaged, parentally disadvantaged, emotionally challenged, you're in all, where do you start? Because the, the journey is different, you know? versus somebody who has a clear path to success. And so I thought about all the lessons. I thought about all the times that I showed up to Lessinger Middle School, Cody High School, with the vision and a dream of success that I could not see in real life. There was nobody in my family I could look and say, well, you know, my uncle went to college and he's a job, got an engine, he's an engineer making six figures. I can follow that path. I had to literally walk this path by faith. They, I had to say, they say go to school and get good grades and go to college and that'll make your life better. I had no idea if that was really true. <laughs> I just had to believe that it was true. And walking that journey is completely different than being able to come home and sit at the dinner table and mom is a dentist and dad is a doctor and you're like, okay, I, you look around and say, this, this must work, look where we're at. 
I had to go off a different path. And so I, I felt like nobody shared those phases that, okay, to be successful, uh, coming from a certain phase, it looks different. So to, to ask you one question, the four phases are, uh, and, and I have to go back to this point. The actual name of the book, I was going to call it The Fight for Success. I was trying to find a way to find the word fight in the title. And at this point, fight's not in the title, but it's definitely the spirit of the book because I feel like, and I know that there would be a large group of people that would be able to relate to this. I don't know who they are. You know, a lot of times people ask me, well, who did you write this book for? I don't know the people, but I know they're out there because I was once one of them and I still am one of them. But you have to fight to become successful. You have to fight to have what you have. And... Uh, you know, in this generation that is more entitled than previous generations, I can see some of the differences. But I said, okay, there's a difference in fighting. That when I was in Detroit mm -hmm. as a, a, a high school teenager, to fight or to be tough was different than when I got to Michigan State. Now, no, no bones about it. When I got to Michigan State, I had to fight, but the fight was different. I had to fight off complacency. I had to fight off laziness. Or I had to fight off intimidation you show up and they're kids that yeah. <laughs> if you go to Michigan State's campus right now all I'm gonna say is there's certain parts of campus where it looks like auto show you might see a Lamborghini you might see a Porsche and I'm not exaggerating like one time I'm crossing the street almost got hit by a car <laughs> I looked back and I was upset till I saw it was a Lamborghini I was like wait almost got it kind of distracted my anger I was I was still upset but I just like well a Lamborghini on the college campus so here you are coming from a difficult, you know, livelihood, and then you get people that are driving, you know, luxury cars. And so I realized that things are different, that, that I needed to walk a different path, and I had to fight. And some of the things I had to fight for, no one else had to fight for. But I still had to fight, that if I didn't put up the fight, I just wouldn't get it. Some of the things that are given to somebody else, I have to literally demand. And so I was like, um, the first fight is the fight for survival. Like you were literally fighting to make it to the next day, to the next week, to the next month. You know, I know people, especially in this economy, sometimes you sit down and you look at the monthly budget and it's a fight. You're, you're not, you know, somebody says, what's your 10-year goal? What's your investment plan? My plan is to make sure I make it through this month. That's, <laughs> you know, when I look at my monthly budget, that dictates what my plan is. And so I learned that there's that fight. Then there's a fight for security. That sometimes you have to fight just to be stable. Fight just to get your life into a position where it's normal. Fight for what other people assume are, are you know, uh, that they take things that they take for granted. Then there's the fight for success. And this is the best one, Chris. The fight for success is the fight that inspires us all. It's, you know, it's the American dream. It's, you know, I want the house. I want the car. I want the job. I want the prestige. I want, and that's the one that inspires. I know that personally inspired me. You know, Randy here. Uh, we go all the way back to the sixth grade, Lessinger Middle School. And so, you know, being a, a kid in the inner city of Detroit, and I always tell people I'm from Detroit, Detroit. <laughs> yeah. That means really Detroit. When black people say something twice, that means it's real. <laughs> like, if it's cold outside, like, it's, it's cold, cold. And, you know, that's how you know it's, or if it's, it's not cold, cold, but it's cold. You know, all right, I know where it's at. But I came from Detroit, Detroit, right? And so, when coming from that, you know, there's a fight that you got to put up, but you give yourself visions of, I'll go off to Michigan State University. I'll become somebody. I'll be successful. I won't always have to have this struggle. But what I've learned is the fight for success is both unnecessary, I mean, it's both necessary and unfulfilling. There's a paradox that it's everything you want, but it's not everything you need. That, that 
as a kid, I had to have the dream that, oh, one day maybe I could be somebody that was a, a president of the United States or a millionaire or something. I needed that. But as an adult, I've learned that once you get there, that if you have some other things that are missing, it's not enough. And so that's where the final fight came up, which is the fight for significance. That the, 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 the defining significance as living your purpose. That the fight to live your purpose, the fight to leave a legacy, the, that's the fight that fulfills us all. And so, because we know a lot of miserably successful people, they have all the money. You ask questions, how can you be upset? You just got a check for $10 million. Like, you know, you hear these types of things. People do that all the time, especially with athletes. Like, man, you play a game. How can you not? <laughs> how can you not be happy? Yeah. You know, your job is great and you make great money, but in life, if you don't feel like you have purpose or significance, then you're always going to be missing something. And so those phases came to me. And again, when I sat when I sat down to write this book, I wasn't deciding to write it. I was discovering what to write, and this was exciting me. Uh, as much as, as I hope it excites, I'm glad it excited you and as hope is, as much as it excites everyone else that when I sat down, I was like, this is amazing. And I, again, I'm not saying this from a perspective, look what I created. It's look what I discovered. I discovered that these phases exist. It's making my life make more sense. Mm. That to be, again, to be tough in Detroit, walking down the street, because I walked down Dre Road, I had to put on a, a what we called a mean mug, you know, because I was... I wasn't the biggest guy, right? I was pretty skinny. And so I didn't want to be a target. I had to look to be tough in the hood. I had to look a certain way. I had to walk a certain way. I had to talk a certain way. And I got to Michigan State and found out being tough in college is different than being tough in Detroit. But in both instances, I had to be tough. And there will be future instances that I will still need to be tough. But tough looks different. In different settings, you know, and so that's that's what I came about. Wow, thank you, thank you for that explanation. Going back to that first fight, that fight for survival. Yes. In the book, you talk a lot about pain, mm-hmm. and one <laughs> of the things that really was kind of an aha moment is that pain is going to be here no matter what. Yes, sir. We all going to experience it, but you talk about mastering your pain, and I never heard that. You know, those words put together, mastering pain. Well, pain is something we try to just, you know, get away from, mm-hmm. avoid. But you argue that we can't avoid it, so we must master it. How do you handle pain? How do you yourself master pain? How did you get to that point where you can master pain? Well, what I learned is that in each phase, the, it's the fight for security. At each phase, you have to do different things that primarily affect that phase. Mm-hmm. That, that if you're living in a, in a great situation, you're born into success. You, you might not have to master pain as much because pain is taken away, right? Um, I work on a college campus and I know a lot of students who, when they fall, when they look like they're about to slip and fall, mom and dad are right there like bumpers, like, uh, you know, training wheels on the bike, bumper lanes in the bowling alley. We will not let you get in the gutter. We will not let you fall. They don't have to hear the message of mastering your pain because pain is being, you know, um, avoided. But when you're that kid, that when you wake up and you, you know, for me, I used to go to school and Randy remember this. They used to call, we used to call each other names all the time. You know, crack a joke, playing the dozens or whatever you want to call it. This is, that, that created emotional pain. You just couldn't get away from it. Yeah. And when you're born into poverty and you have to deal with that, you can't just quickly get away from it. So you will have ex- painful experiences. And what I learned is that in the fight for survival, that painful phase, uh, phase lasts longer. And you have to recognize that you have to master it because you can't eliminate it. The things that are beyond your control. 
And so instead of avoiding it, and then I feel like God began to talk to me because I asked one day, you know, in, in the book, I'll put some of this in there, but I had some painful experiences. I had some difficult challenges. And a lot of times people will say, well, what was your role in it? Well, there's sometimes you, you, you don't know your role because you wasn't even ready to play a role, right? That, that, um, that when you're a young child and you're put into a difficult situation, it's like you can't ask a 10-year-old, what's your role in your family's poverty, you know, being a, you know, financially disadvantaged? I don't have a role other than being born, which wasn't my choice. So I had to learn how to, so I asked, so I was like, why, why am I so much, why did all these challenges, this type of pain, where does, why, you know, why me? Why is this happening to me? And I'll never forget he said, this, sometimes this level of pain has to come on you to get a certain level of greatness out of you. But just like when a diamond is hit inside a piece of coal, that the pain comes to pressure the diamond but based on its response, I mean, pressure to call, but based on the response, the diamond will come out. And so um, I've faced difficult, painful situations in, in my family setting, you know, with my parents. My dad was in jail for 18 years of my life, from age 6 to 24, which means he missed, you know, any award I won in middle school or high school, he wasn't there. Any track, I ran track, he wasn't there cheering me on. Didn't see me graduate high school, didn't see me graduate college, that just didn't happen. Um, Possibly as a result of his absence, me and my mother had a strained relationship, and it's, so it's difficult when you're you're you know, you feel as though you have no emotional support. And I even talk in the book about a term I call emotional homelessness. That it's one thing to be physically homeless; people can see that, but when you're emotionally homeless, people we haven't thought about that. You know, a homeless person during the day you can blend in and look like everybody else, walking the home Whole Foods. I mean. But at night, it's in those moments that you need a place to go, a home, to, and when you don't have emotionally a place to go, it can be tough. And so I've been through that. I've been through some financial challenges as an adult. Uh, I've been divorced, you know, and I wasn't a fan of that. I didn't want that to happen. Uh, and so I had a lot of challenges, and what I learned is that pay, there was pain in my past, pain in my present, and there will be pain in the future. And what I have to begin to do is learn how to use that pain to produce success. Because most successful people had a painful situation that positioned them to do something different. That, you know, going as far back as I'll never forget the story is that Thomas Edison watched his mother die because the doctor couldn't operate on her because it, uh, she was ill in the middle of the night. And they said, if your mother makes it until the sun rises, we can begin to help her. And he prayed that night, God, please let my mother live until the sun comes up so that the doctors can save my mom. That prayer wasn't answered. And, but what was answered is, you, you had a kid, I believe he's like 10, you had a kid that dedicated his life, that I'm gonna find a way to create light so that we don't have to wait till the sun comes up to be able to save lives. Wow. And so that came out of a painful situation. And that's what it's gonna take for sometimes for us that pain has a purpose. Pain is not meant to destroy you, it's meant to develop you. But you, many of us allow it to de destroy us because we don't let it play its, its proper role. Wow, that's powerful. I never even knew that story. That's, that's deep. Yeah, man. It always, always grabbed me in a, in a special yeah, place. Yeah, yeah. So for someone listening now, someone maybe in the audience who's like experiencing some painful situations and they may not have someone to support them, what would you say to that person listening now on how they can get themselves out of that situation or how they can alleviate that pain or to see the value and how they can flip that to have some success from it? Absolutely. There's a Chinese proverb that says the definition of danger means crisis, but it also means opportunity. 
And I think that when a problem comes up or pain comes up in your life, it can present a crisis, but it also presents an opportunity. And so what I realized is this, is that pain always plays a purpose. And if you think about the physical body, when you feel pain, that's your body saying, hey, something's wrong and needs to be fixed, right? Something's out of alignment, right? That, that if you sleep a certain way and you get what we used to call a crook in your neck, you know, it's your body sending a message like, hey, this didn't work. You might want to sleep differently because this, this hurts, right? You know, um, that if you slip and fall, what's one thing that reminds you not to do that again? How much it hurts? Like, okay, we got to make sure we don't do this again. That pain plays a purpose. And so what I would say is that try to look for the sign or the message in which pain is trying to send you. That if it's in a relationship and there's emotional pain, is the message saying you need to increase your, or your standards so that you're selecting from a different pool? Because if you select from a certain pool of people, it'll be the same thing with a different name. But once you realize there's too much pain in that pool, you have to elevate. And also there's a, Anthony Robbins uh, does a teaching. He says that in life we only do things because of pain or pleasure, to avoid pain or pursue pleasure. And so I believe that pain is designed to really get our attention. That sometimes we will not change our lives until it's painful enough to where we can't bear it anymore. Mm-hmm. And so I feel like you don't allow, have to allow it to get to that position. The more intelligent you are about your self-awareness, you can say, okay, I don't want it to get to this point, that this is as painful as I want it to be in order to make that change. But I think pain shows up to show you that something's wrong, something needs to be fixed, something needs to be adjusted. But the reason I say master your pain is that sometimes to make that change, the pain doesn't go away immediately. That, that you know, it goes away gradually. Mm-hmm. Wow. Looking at the second fight, that fight for security, when you get to the point where you can master the pain and you're looking at how you can stabilize your life, you mentioned something in the book I think is very interesting is that sometimes we allow those wounds from the pain to still stop us or hinder us. How do we make sure that we can, you know, maybe acknowledge those wounds, but not let it stop us in our tracks when we're trying to reach greatness? Yeah. When you f- have fought for survival and you finally get to a place where, you know, I use finances as an example. Some people they complain and they say, "Man, after I after I get my check, I can pay all my bills, but I have nothing left." Where in the survival phase, you don't get to that first step. You get the check, but you can't pay all the bills. You're trying to decide who to pay, you know? You're making life decisions. You're trying to figure out, okay, uh, who will cut my stuff off first <laughs> and who will give me an opportunity to, to, you know, spread this out. But once you fight and you get to the phase where you're stable, you're putting in all of this effort just to, just to get, you know, uh, stable. To go forward and push for success, there's a part of you that says, I don't want to go through all of this again. I'd rather be comfortable where I'm at. I'd rather stabilize and then just be okay. But through my own life experiences, what I found is that if you fight just to get to security or stabilizing, that you are you are one life event from being knocked back into a crisis. You're one life event from being knocked back into survival. Hmm. And so the comfort that you seek is found in pursuing the next level because you don't want to be in a position where one thing can knock you right back to what it is that you wanted to escape from. Also, life is about growth. 
And that if you if your mission is to stop growing, then you're not really living life. You're not experiencing life at its greatest level. But I understand the temptation because you just exerted all of this energy, and now it's like I don't have to worry about you know the the challenges I used to worry about. I don't have to worry about the things that used to bother me. I'm in a good place, and you want to keep that. My message is, in order to keep that, you got to increase that. Mm. Wow, wow, man, awesome stuff. I got a lot of questions I still got to get to with you. Yes. I want to take a break here. I want to actually turn it over to the audience. We're going to take a few audience questions uh, for DeAndre. Hi. Um, it's it's this um, statement, but also a question. Um, I could definitely relate with growing up in the hood. I grew up in Brightmore, and I got a scholarship to go to uh, culinary school. So I went to Johnson Wells University in uh, Providence, Rhode Island, and I went there for four years. And, you know, when you're in the hood, you, you have that, that – that defense mode, you know, you got you, you to gotta put your grit face on. It's, it's like when we say in the fraternity, you know, when you're about to do a probate show or whatever, you know, you got to put your grit face on, you got to go and do your thing. And so for me, the, the biggest thing was transitioning from the hood to college and becoming relatable. And that was something that I initially had a hard time doing, but out there there's different cultures, and, and, and for me, I, I kind of picked up on it gradually, and then, you know, I was good with other people. But you, growing up, Joy Row, what were some of the challenges that you faced when leaving the hood to go to, you know, college and just trying to find your niche and fit in in a uh, collegiate world? I think the first, qu uh, the most important word you use is becoming relatable, is that, that when you get to, to college, you begin to see that, this is the one unfortunate thing I learned about being in Detroit. And when I say unfortunate, I mean in terms of exposure, is that 96% of the students in my high school were, were black, African-American. Yep. And one of the reasons I chose Michigan State is because I looked up and the, at the time, Michigan State was 11.8% African-American. And then I looked at, uh, or 10.9 rather. Now I looked at the U.S. statistics at that time and the U.S. was 11.8%. And I figured that's about the same. And so I figured I want to go to Michigan State to get a taste of what this world, real world is, that, exactly. that Detroit is not the real world. However, the taste I got was very unfamiliar, you know, um, that, and, and so that's why I talk about these phases because I would get to college, I'll never forget, I went on study abroad, uh, my senior year of college, and I took out loans and the school paid for it, and now I'm paying for it. But, <laughs> but um, I went over there and I didn't know what the world was like. For my three-week trip, I had like $430. So I, in my mind, had a very strict budget. They were like, let's go out and eat. I was like, but they're feeding us here for free. <laughs> like, I think I'm gonna stay at the hotel tonight and eat this free meal. One of the uh, one of the girls on the trip was like, I'm gonna send my, ask my mom to send me another $1,000 cause we're going, you know, we have some extra time to go shopping tomorrow. And I, I pay attention to context. And what grabbed me was not thousand, it was another. <laughs> I said, another? <laughs> that, that assumes it was one before. So it was becoming relatable. So what I did is I started paying attention to other people. And, be, and part of becoming relatable, there's always, it's like, you know, those graphs where they show circles, kind of like the Olympic circles. There's always a part of the circle in the human experience that overlaps. There are parts in which we relate. And what I'm saying is that when we're in the same areas, those circles are almost identical and they're very smaller, you know, differences. But when you get into new environments, the differences become bigger. So 
what I what I do is I look for what 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 are, how are which ways are we the same and which ways are we similar? Do we like the same sports teams? Do we have the same ambitions, the same interests? And then it helps to accept some of the differences because even our friends, you know, in our same neighborhoods, they're the same, but then there's differences. Oh, you like peanut butter, I like jelly, right? You know, or you know, uh, you like vanilla and I like chocolate, but we both like ice cream, and so. That's a process that I think you first have to be open to, to recognize it. But the way to navigate it is to look for the similarities first, to create the connection, because people like being around people they can relate to. Then when you can't relate, it's like you want to go find somebody else to relate to. We're social beings. But then we, I think our growth comes from the areas in which we're different. Because then you start, I'm pretty sure, you know, going out to Rhode Island, you say, this is <laughs> very, very different, right? And so the same for me, just being in East Lansing, it was, it was literally like a different world. I think that's why they even came up with the, that show by that title is that it is a different world and where you come from. But the way to navigate it is to look for the similarities to form the bond and then find the differences to, to find the growth. Cool, more questions live. Will there be an audio book for this book? Yes, there will be an audio book. The first thing is to get the hardcover book out, begin to uh, do speaking engagements, or continue to do speaking engagements, promote the book, promote the book online. Uh, I've started a YouTube show. We're going to relaunch it and upgrade it and continue to do that. And as I continue to get more support, I'll adapt, uh, I actually look forward to doing an audio book. I feel like I want to um, I want to be one of those authors that does their own audio for the book so you can hear the spirit of the book coming through me. And um, I think that's critical because... Uh, one thing that, that in writing this book, I always wanted to write a book, but I always wanted to write it from a position of like success. I've made it. Let me tell you how. <laughs> I'm on the mountaintop. You can get here too. That probably would have been the name of the book, you know? And instead, I feel like God positioned me where I'm not writing this book from the mountaintop. I'm writing it from the valley, but I'm writing it with the mentality of somebody who's already on top of the mountain. And it's a unique, I think that's what's going to make the book stand. It's going to be unique. It's going to be like, I will not ignore your pain because I, I, I'm experiencing it myself. I understand what that means. But I'm thinking from a different perspective, so I'm not going to um, box you in with, with your current situation. So I'm excited about that because I think that when I do the audio to the book, you'll be able to sense that. That, that there's sometimes when you get lessons or tips from people, it comes across as condescending. It's like just saying, oh, just pull yourself up by your bootstraps. It's, you can hear that. When you hear my book, it'll be like, I understand how much it hurts. I really do. But I also understand that if you have the strength to complain, then you have the strength to create. So just use the strength, the remaining strength you have differently. But I won't be able, I won't just, you know, brush off people's uh, adversity because firsthand I experienced myself. So I'm actually looking forward to doing an audio book. Any other questions before we get back into the interview? Out of everything that you put in the book, what is the one thing you would want the reader to walk away with? The one thing I would want the reader to walk away with is the understanding that you control what's going to happen next in your life. I think that a lot of people have an unhealthy relationship with the past. They think the past is going to be the future because that's all that they know. And because they think like that, sometimes the past does become the future. You know, because you're doing what you did in the past to create the present that you don't like. And then you, as you continue to think about it, you or this is the way I always phrase it when I talk in front of audiences, that when you use your present to think about and dwell on your past, you are literally creating a future that you don't want. 
you are making tomorrow worse by using today to think about how bad yesterday was. Is I want the reader to walk away with, you have the power to change tomorrow no matter what phase you're in. You might be in success just trying to get to significance. You might be in security just trying to bump it up. You might be in survival. No matter where you are, the next thing, what's going to happen next is not predetermined. That is the core principle that helped me as you know a, a skinny black kid walking to school in Detroit to think that I could have a better life is that tomorrow might be better than today. But so I'm gonna have to try to do something about that to make sure that that keep that hope alive. If it were not for that one principle, I would not be sitting here today. You know, Randy and I before the event were talking about how many gangs were in our neighborhood when we were coming up. I would have joined one if I felt like tomorrow was just gonna be worthless. But I had this hope that somehow, some way, somewhere down the road, it will get better. And that's the message I want you to walk away, that you have to demand your position. You have to demand greatness. And it starts with demanding more from yourself and more from how others uh, come in, in, in contact with you as well. Any other questions? Are you ready? Yes, sir. All right. So welcome back for part two of the interview with DeAndre Carter author of Demand Greatness is Chris Watson with Discovering What's Inside. DeAndre, let's let's talk about your life a little bit. Yes, sir. What would you say has been the biggest fight you've had in life? Man, I say the biggest fight, you know, the, the most recent fight. You know, that's how it is in life. You always think whatever just happened is the biggest <laughs> thing that's ever happened. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to start with that. Is that uh, about three years ago, I got divorced. And I grew up in a home where, again, I told you, my dad was in prison for 18 years. So one of the dreams I had in life was to grow up and have the nuclear family. Mm -hmm. You know, it's going to be me, my wife, my kids, just like the show. <laughs> me, my wife, my kids. And we're going to live in the same house. And we're going to have the same memories of holidays. And we're going to have the same vacations. And this was my dream. And when that began to fall apart, that ripped a part of me away because that's a dream that you... There's some things in life, once you lose it, it's lost. That, that, you know, so once I started seeing it, I couldn't stop the divorce, that I couldn't prevent this from happening. I went into a tailspin mentally and emotionally because it was like, what, what do you do now? Like, this dream you've had, I, I waited until I was 32 to get married. I wasn't very promiscuous during my college years or early 20s. So I was waiting for this. I was preparing for this. This is what I wanted. And then I found out I lost it and I couldn't stop it from being lost. And so... I didn't want to be the dad to my daughter. I wanted to, us to come in. I wanted to come home and, and oh, daddy's home, right? Mm -hmm. So when that was taken away, and I had worked for such a long time, because I've had other fights that on an on a even scale, I would probably say some of the other fights were a bigger fight, but the, way, the one that made this feel like it was the biggest is I worked for it. I waited for it. I put in effort for it and for it to fall apart. And so how I began to handle it, one of the things I did is uh, I used some of my last money. Uh, first, I did a free 30-minute consultation with Anthony Robbins Coaching. Now I used some of my last money to actually invest in a success coach. It was very expensive, and some people might say, oh, that's not a good decision. But that combined with a 13-week course at a church on recovering from divorce, those two things combined gave me the strength to move on and gave me lessons that some of which I put into book, but really really helped me overcome that fight. And uh, just one, one quick point, one of the coaches said something to me. He said, DeAndre, you will recover from this. Mm -hmm. The question is not will you recover. The question is how long will you allow it to take? Mm -hmm. At the time, there was a forest fire in Colorado going on. He said, DeAndre, there's a fire out in Colorado, right? I said, yes. He said, 
the fire doesn't decide who it burns the most. That the fire burns the same on us all. There would be some people that would say, my life was thrown off track for two months because of this fire. There would be some people that say, my life was thrown off for two years because of this fire. There would be some people that say, my life was thrown off for ten years because of this fire. And some people would say, my life never got back on track after the fire. He said, in each case, the fire doesn't make the decision. The person does. He said, one day you'll have to tell your daughter the story about how this played out. What story are you going to tell her? The daddy fell apart, and that's why his life didn't go right, and this is why he's where he's at? Or daddy grew up through these difficult experiences, and this is why where he's at. And that is weird because it's not like that very moment he said that I rose up, like in the movies, <laughs> and demanded my position. But it planted a seed in me that day that said, okay, I'm hurting now. But there's a deadline for this pain. And there's a deadline for this, for, you know, every nightmare has an awakening. There's a deadline for this. And then I'll rise up. But that was the biggest fight because it's a residual fight. There's still, there's something, Chris, I don't know if you know about this. <laughs> there's something called child support. I do know. <laughs> I hope you never know about this personally. Right. But there's something called child support to remind you about your past. Right. And so there's a residual effect that this has. So it's a fight that. I have to continue to fight against. I have to continue to grow from. But that 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 would I would say is my, my most difficult fight because um, research shows that when you work towards something and it doesn't happen, it has a, a deeper emotional impact because you you work for it. You know, when you see something you felt that that you put time into fall apart, it's different than if you just put a little bit of time and it fell apart. Yeah, yeah. Well, we definitely appreciate you being just open and honest with us. I think, that, like you said, relatable. I mean, that's. I think sometimes when you see guys in your position, you know, you you motivate people all over the world. You got the book. And we just think, like, your life is just so perfect. Like, you can't, you don't know what it's like to be in my shoes, you know. But Absolutely. I like that you just open with the people here, the listeners, the people who read your book, because I think that's what allows people to really resonate. And this fact that you can go through that and still have this outlook on life and still understand how to get over that. And I think that's just going to be so powerful and um it's really gonna draw people in. I'm hoping so. That that's my intent. My intent again. I, and again, I'm not taking credit for this. I feel like God positioned me to write the book from the valley, so that it can relate to people, but also have a perspective of just because you're you're down, you don't have to be out. And yeah, so, yeah. Um, I'm hoping that, that that people can relate that that bad things happen to everybody. The question is, how are you gonna bounce back from it? Mm-hmm. And if it were not for me using some of these same lessons. I wouldn't have bounced back. So I feel obligated to share it with other people. And it might not help everybody, but I guarantee it'll help somebody. Absolutely. Something else you mentioned that I want to speak on real quick, because this is, it really goes with the theme of the show, Discovering What's Inside. You mentioned that investment into yourself, you know, spending a lot of money, you yourself, someone who counsels and mentors other people, seeking out someone to counsel and mentor and help you. How important is it for people of any age to be constantly personally developing themselves? Can you just speak on that? Because I think a lot of times we miss that. And I think from an authority figure like yourself, it's powerful to know that we all have to get better. We all have Definitely. to. We all need that support. So can you just speak on that for a second? Yeah, I think is. I think is the most the most important thing you can do is continue to invest in yourself. That as you become a better person, I think there's an. I think think about like iPhones, right? Mm-hmm. I think that. And I don't own an iPhone, but I know a lot of happy iPhone owners. They, they love iPhone. They think your life isn't right if, it, if you don't have that, that Apple uh, iPhone. But iPhones are right, right now with iPhone 6. Mm-hmm. But at one point, there was an iPhone. 
didn't even have one on it, it was just iPhone. And then they upgraded it to two, then to three. Each version got a little bit better. They didn't go from one to six, there wasn't this growth, but in order to have success in life, I think you have to continue to grow. Because as you grow, you make minor changes that make you more efficient, more effective, and you have perspective changes. I'll never forget, at one point, Apple was all about having the smallest phone. Like if they could make <laughs> your phone this small, they, they would have promoted, like look at the iPhone. But the most recent one was all about is here it is. It's got to be bigger. <laughs> the the reason I think that's so critical is that life is not just stable and consistent. The things change, and that if you don't change as things change, you're putting yourself in a in a disadvantaged position. You're actually falling behind. So if you're not growing, you're not changing. You're automatically losing because the world around you is going to continue to grow and change. And and I think sometimes people misunderstand growth and change. There's a, another speaker's name is Jonathan Sprinkles. He posted this on Facebook one day and I just latched on to it. He said 10% different is new. And it just, it's like fireworks went off in my, in my mind. Like, that's it. If I can encourage people to just change in increments, 10% different is new. That if you just do a little bit different, that's all you worry about. That if you think about the iPhones and if you've got, the one wasn't so much different than the two. It's not like the iPhone, this is the iPhone one, and then the two looked like this. And you're like, whoa, this is completely different. No, it looks similar, but there are a few changes, a few upgrades. And then when you do change like that, the, the, and you view it like that, you, 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 you experience, in life, if we continue to experience progress, there's a level of happiness that just comes with that. If you just feel like, I'm getting better. You know, I'm not where I wanna be, but I'm not where I used to be. It makes you feel good. It's when people are like, man, I'm putting all this work and I'm in the same place. It's, it's scary. It's, it's frustrating and infuriating. And it's debilitating because you begin to think, if all my hard work leaves me in the same place, why should I continue to work? And so I talk about needing to create progress and get better and the way you do that, because personally, I've, I've bought so many books. And if people say, oh, if you, don't, if you don't have money, money's not an excuse. If you don't have money to buy books, my favorite move was to grab a notebook, walk to a bookstore, grab one off the shelf, and begin to read. <laughs> they don't, they, you know, this is not in the clothing stores, you, you know, they, you know, can I help you? You know, they got commissions. In a bookstore, you can sit for hours. Nobody's even going to come up to you. You can read from some of the greatest minds on earth, those that are with us and those that have passed, and you get, get nuggets, and then you get to walk home with your own little notebook, grab what helped you out, and I would do that. Like, when I was in college, I didn't have money. I wasn't asking mom for another $1,000, right? <laughs> so I was going to the bookstore, grabbing my notebook, and reading Robert Kiyosaki, reading these other authors, grabbing a message, and then going home. And I used to catch the bus to the mall, so I just read it, reread my notes on the book. On, on the bus, but it was helping me to grow. It was helping me to see that tomorrow can be better. And I think that, um, you know, as you grow as an individual, your perspective changes. And as your perspective changes, your opportunities change and what your actions change. So I think it's invaluable. Everybody should find a way to invest in themselves, uh, expand your mind, continue, you know, financially and otherwise, do what it takes to make yourself a better person. Excellent, excellent. And this is, that was part of my motivation for this podcast so if people are listening to something on the go they can hear from great people like you to hopefully grow them grow themselves personally in a multitude of ways getting back to the phases of life yes we talked about those fights fight for survival we talked about fight for security 
Let's talk about fighting for success. Yes. And we, we just talked a little bit about success. And something you mentioned in the book is that you have to pay for success in advance. Yes, sir. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's not one of those things you, you know, you, you, you pay the cost and you walk away with it in the same, same day or the same time. But expand on that. What does that mean to pay for success in advance? And how can you make, maybe help someone who may be struggling? They, they're paying and paying, but they haven't got it yet. Definitely. Paying for success in advance means that, you know, uh, you have to put up the cost. And I, I talk about sometimes that it, it, success will haze you with adversity to see if you really want this. If this is really, do you, we know you think you want this, but do you really want this? And that the people who go through that process come out with a different attitude, right? And so success is set up that if you, and, and, and you know what, when it, when it comes to success, it's continued success that people want. People don't want to be successful one time and then, all right, I could go back to being mediocre in life, right? That's never the plan. That in everybody's mind, their growth curve is always going up. So the thing about success is that because people want continued success, success requires continued payment. That if I go, I just bought a juice downstairs at the Whole Foods. If I come back tomorrow and grab another juice, they want another payment. <laughs> what I can't do, and I will not try, but, <laughs> and I advise you not to either, but what I can't do is say, hey, I paid the price yesterday for this juice, so I should be able to get it today. And it's like, no, you paid the price yesterday for the juice you had yesterday. If you want another juice, you have to pay another price. And what a lot of us want is we want to pay this one-time payment for residual success, which would be nice, but life isn't set up like that. You have to make pay another price for this next level. That if you want to stay on the level you're at, you keep paying that price. But when you ever you want to step up, you have to pay a new price. I'll never forget Beyonce said that when she left Destiny's Child and went to do her first album, she had to pay another price. She had been successful. It was one of the most successful female R&B groups ever. And, they're, and, and the, 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 uh, the record label executives are looking at her like, can you do it? She's like, but look at, look at what I've done. But yeah, that was with a group. Can you do it by yourself? We're not, and she had her album there. It was like, we're not sure if this has any, you know, if we're, uh, this was the exact way they phrased it. We don't know if there's one number one hit on this album. And the way she tells the story is like, they were right. It wasn't one. There were five number one hits on that album. <laughs> and the whole point is that to go to the next level, you have to pay the next price. And that, that that's what the fight for success requires. It requires you to understand that, all right, if I want more, I have to give more. But there, the funny thing is that success is not incremental. Success is exponential. Growth is incremental. And so that's where people, like, so you're talking about how do you keep working and working and working. Yeah, yeah. You keep working and working and working, you're just getting a little bit. But there's a point at which you begin to get more than, it looks like you get more than you deserve. I know speakers who make $50,000 for a presentation. You're like, how do you do that, right? Like, how do you get to that level? I believe it's because they've given so much over the years that they eventually elevated to a point where now they get more than what they deserve on if you put it in a vacuum but when you look at it I mean you even look at athletes you know there's a guy in baseball just you know uh, make 325 million dollars he's like oh you know and they always do I love this they always do the you know this guy makes $72,000 per at bat <laughs> you're only counting the ones in the game you're not counting all the ones he did that you weren't there reporting on when he was in little league when he was in high school when he was in college when he's in practice 
do the price on all the swings he's ever taken in his life and then tell me the number. But they only want to take what's, what's in the season. Oh, LeBron makes, you know, this many dollars per jump shot. Are you counting the millions he's taken when you weren't there? You know, I always ask people, how many jump shots do you think Kobe Bryant's taken in his life? Right. <laughs> From age four, five, six, seven. I mean, he's he's the kind of guy, he'll shoot eight, 800 times in the morning before anybody gets to practice. Mm -hmm. Did you count all of those? That, that when you put in that much success, you work hard, and, and, and this is a great thing, the successful people understand it's not about perfection, it's about progression, and when you understand that, the journey feeds you. Hmm. And when the journey feeds you, it allows you to get to the destination. So I just, you know, I always say this, there's a quote that I didn't like when I was younger, and I love it now, it says, success is not a journey, it's a destination. Well, I like to remix it. Success is a journey with multiple destinations. There are multiple places on that journey where you will look and say, this is awesome. That even if you ask Oprah, it won't be her biggest accomplishment that makes her excited. It'll be a moment in life that seemed in insignificant to us, but it was the moment of growth for her. So the journey provides things to you that, that, that I mean, if you ask Tyler Perry, I, I guarantee you his most successful movie won't be his favorite. It'll be one where he realized that, oh, I can really make it. It'll be one that we weren't even there for. And that's the thing that's, that's awesome. Nah, I, I totally agree with that. One of my biggest accomplishments just as like an entrepreneur was just getting this podcast submitted to iTunes. I had episodes recorded, but I was letting that fear, this, this whole, mm -hmm. I was holding myself back. Yep. And I got with some people like that, some accountability partners. And we and we're all, I got some people in, uh, two people in London, one person in Australia. We all link up on this call every Sunday. And we do our task, and one of my tasks, like, okay, you know what, guys, I'm gonna submit it. I'm gonna get it out there. And they're like, dude, what are you waiting on? They see my website. They're like, dude, it looks sweet. Like, what are you? And I'm just like, no, this, I gotta tweak this one thing. And I finally got it up. But just getting it up was like, I finally did it. You know, it was yeah. like, it was just that moment. It's like, I'm not just gonna stop there, but that's gonna be a moment I'll never forget because I, for so long, I just held it off. Exactly. I held it off, and like, you know, that's like one destination. Yep. I'll keep going, but. I'll never forget that. Yeah, never. And those are, that's, that's so, somebody fighting for success that's in the journey and the destination, that's what I tell them. Those are the moments that get you excited. Those yeah. are the moments, you know, if you really think in life, it's our most private or close personal moments that we cherish the most. It's not the one where everybody, you know, like a college student, when they graduate, that day on the stage is awesome. But there are, you know, certain moments in undergrad that, you know, man, that one night I stayed up all night and got that, that 4.0 or that 3.5 when I didn't know if I could do it. It's always those moments that we cherish the most. Mm. And so I cherish people, don't, don't get so lost in the goal that's 10 years down the road that you miss the moment that's 10 minutes down the road. Man. Woo. Y'all enjoying this? <laughs> <laughs> What's the connection between consistency and success? Uh, they're, they're intricately linked. They're like, you can't get one without the other because success, again, what we want is continued success. So consistency, the thing consistency allows you to do, allows you to go from being an expert to a master. Experts can produce results here and there, but masters know the craft inside and out. So where the expert is just looking at this like, okay, I understand I have talent. I'm going to try to go and see what my talent can do. So the expert is like, oh, let's see how this happens. The master is like, I understand my talent, and I want to produce something. I want this to go somewhere. And so when you're consistent at something, like I do a lot of public speaking. I do it so consistently that um, I'm able to evaluate success differently from my presentations because I'm feeding off what, what different audiences are giving me, yeah. right? And so, you know, um, 
I felt and I even take this approach toward parenting. I don't show up saying I'm gonna do this and they're gonna like it. I show up saying what do they need and how can I provide it? And the more consistent I am in what I do, I add more tools to my toolbox. How can I, okay, I'm consistently trying to be my best, so I, I learned something here. When you're consistently trying to, like if you're not consistent and you evaluate yourself, you're evaluating something that doesn't really exist. Because when you're on your low points, you're, that, that's not your best, and you evaluate it, you're getting a fake evaluation. That you're changing something and it's like, it's not even gonna uh, uh, help you because you're not giving your best. It's like when coaches are looking at athletes on film and the athlete is just giving half effort, he's like, I can't tell you what to do because you're not doing it at your best. The mistake you're making might not even show up at your best, so I give you a solution that you can't even apply at your best. <laughs> and so you gotta give your best consistently to find out where the flaws are. And that's, that's the thing that's gonna push us to the next level, is I'm consistently giving my best so that whenever I get a critique or evaluation, you're evaluating my best. So when I make that change, I'm actually changing myself and not my imposter, the imposter version of myself. Mm. Wow. We're almost wrapping up. This has been good. I'm, I'm telling you, I love yeah, doing I these interviews because I get to grow from I get, I'm telling you, I'm just got you nuggets, 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 nuggets. Um, a lot of people, they think success is the end all be all. But you talk about how sometimes you may get that car, you may get that new home, or you may get that new job title, that new accomplishment, but you realize that that's, there's more to it that you're still missing, that you still need. And that brings us to the last phase, that fight for significance. Yes. Talk about that and why it's the, the last fight, why people sometimes get it confused. They, they, they forget about its placement and why that's really what we're striving for. The reason it's the last fight is because it's the one that we most often don't pay attention to. The fight for survival, you can't afford not to pay attention. You have to, you know, cry, when a crisis shows up, you can't ignore it. That's why it's a crisis. Um, I had a small crisis last week. I, I'm waking my daughter up. She's watching cartoons, eating breakfast, and I'm, I'm getting dressed for work, and I hear a, the sound of water. So I go in the, and I look at the computer to see, because the cartoon she's watching is about dinosaurs, and I've never heard water in the cartoon. So when I hear the sound, I was like, oh, is that a new episode? And I go, look, and it's not. And I'm like, okay, that's not good, because there's no water in my bathroom, and it sounds like it's coming from the kitchen now that I'm in the living room. And I go in the kitchen and open up the, the, the cabinets, and hot water is spraying out, right? So the pipe is burst. You can't afford, you know, can't, that's the five percent. You can't it. ignore that. You're gonna be like, man, all right, well, let me go to work now. <laughs> you have to address that immediately. Then there's the fight for security. You want that because you want to be comfortable. Everybody wants to have a moment where you just sit down, kick your feet up, and be like, whew, all right, everything's good, right? You want success because you think that's what success will give you. People feel like their answers are a success. Sometimes we don't want the fight for significance because we've missed how valuable it is. I mean, how many times have we sat down and thought, what is my purpose? What is it that feeds me? What is it that helps me grow? And then the part two the thing that, that, that's so confusing or challenging about that is that when you start talking about purpose, the first question people ask is, what's my purpose? And when they don't know the answer, they say, I don't know my purpose. And so what do we do with things that we don't know? We move it somewhere else. I don't want to think about that. I don't want to ask. I don't want to be thinking about questions that I don't have answers for. I just rather not think about the question. So that's what it is that that, that people miss with significance is they think they you know. But the, the the hidden quality is that when you are doing purpose, you are your soul is fed in a way that no check can do. 
that no uh, no other person can do. That it's 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 it until you get into it, it's difficult to describe. Mm -hmm. But when you are doing what you're supposed to do, it is filling you up. And that's why I say fulfillment in life comes from fulfillment of purpose. And the key word is full. You you feel full in life when purpose is 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 filling you up. Wow. For someone listening and they're hearing you talk about these different fights, they may think, they may be confused on where they're at. And we mm -hmm. talked about a little, bit, a little bit before we started this interview. How does someone know where they're at in life? If they want to identify themselves, how do they know where they're at? Definitely. I want, I'm going to answer that, but I just thought about something as it relates to purpose. Because I, I want to make sure I help somebody tonight. And I, and I specifically put this one out, that this is one of the things you will walk with. I want to share something with you about purpose that I don't think you've ever heard. If you have, then tell me later. But as of right now, I'm going to assume that you've never heard this about purpose. I do this all the time when I'm coaching people. I say, do you know what your purpose is? And they will say no. And I say, do you really? They say no. I say, think about it like this. Everybody has probably seen the, the, the show Will of Fortune. And it, the phrase comes up, and I, say, I ask the question, do you know the phrase? And most people will say, no, I don't know the phrase. I say, that's not true. That if I flipped all the letters over, you're telling me you couldn't read the words that were in front of you? They say, yeah, I could read it. So I say, you know the phrase. The only way you wouldn't know the phrase is if they had it in like Chinese characters, and you didn't <laughs> speak Chinese. They would flip it over, and it's like, what's the phrase? You're like, that didn't help me at all. <laughs> you might as well flip them back over, <laughs> right? But when, if it's in the language, and life is in the language that we understand, that when you flip the letters over, you can see it. If I flip them over and you can't see it, the issue is that you don't know it. The issue is you haven't done enough things to recognize it, right? That you haven't picked up enough clues in life to, and the clues help you flip over a letter, right? So when you say T and then you flip over two letters, those are clues that pull you a little bit closer to what you know. If you were to try a new food, and you liked it, did you dislike it before you tried it? No, you liked it the entire time, but you had never had an experience to show you what already existed. When the Wright brothers you know, found a way to keep a plane in the air, they didn't create the law of lift, they discovered it. So your purpose has to be discovered. So when people say you don't know it, that's not true. You just haven't discovered it yet. You need to be in the process of doing new things, seeking it, asking the right questions, to flip over clues so that it hits you. And then that moment when it hits you, you discover what you really knew all along. And so that's something about purpose I want people to grasp is that you know it as soon as you come in contact with it, but you have to be looking for it. Yeah. So I just felt like I had to oh, put yeah, that that's, in. That's powerful. That's powerful. Well, as we get ready to wrap it up, tell us how can we support the book? I may have a project where people can actually support and I want to get this on the website so tell us a little bit about how we can support the book where can we find you online mm -hmm. um, I know people are going to engage you we want more DeAndre Carter where do we go and how do we support you getting this book alright right now we have a website uh, I have my own website it's DeAndreCarter.com you can go there you get tons of information about programs that I deliver speaking engagements how to bring into your church your organization your business your nonprofit, and, uh, and pick up uh, information there we have a crowdfunding website as well. It's called Indiegogo.com, uh, similar to like Kickstarter, which is a little bit more you know popular. But Indiegogo is actually the largest globally, the largest crowdfunding website in the world, and uh, the most used one. And so uh, you go to Indiegogo and you type in "demand greatness," or you can go to Google and type in Indiegogo "demand greatness." The site will pop up. On the site, you will notice a lot of information I share about the book, wh who's it for, why we're we doing this. 
um, how we're raising money to actually cover publishing costs so we can get the book printed. And then on the side, there will be perks. And you can share a donation, and in exchange, you'll get a perk. Now, my, my, my goal is to get the book in everybody's hands. So everybody who makes a donation will get, will get the book because my goal and my purpose is to push this information in people's hands and into their hearts so they can change their life. So the ways that you can uh, find out about that is on Indie, and that's I-N-D-I-E, gogo, G-O-G-O, dot com, and you type in Demand Greatness. That campaign is up and through through the end of the month until November 30th. At that point, the campaign expires, and but you can come to DeAndreCarter.com or follow me on any social media outlet, and I'll show you how to continue to be uh, in contact with my message because I'm looking to start what I call a greatness movement, Chris. So a movement where people are looking for ways to become the greatest version of themselves. Because if that's what you were in life, the greatest version of yourself, you'd be a happier person, you'd be a healthier person, you'd want to con- and you'd contribute more to society. Um, but I think that it's not too many areas or places in life where we come and talk about greatness, you know? And so I want to create a, a, a community of people that that's what they believe in and that's what they believe in helping others to do as well. Wow, wow. Well, this has been enlightening. It's been a treat. Uh, one of my favorite episodes I've recorded. Thank you. I appreciate um, that. So I thank you. I can't wait to get this up for the listeners. We had an audience in here who's heard us. You got a question? One question. Okay, let's hear it. Um, have you thought about doing an ebook? Yes. In the, prize, in the publishing um, agreement, there will be both a hardcover book and an ebook that will be available on, uh, I believe, Amazon or I think you have to go through Apple to be able to do an ebook. Uh, we're in the process. The, the publisher, that's their end of things. But to answer the question, there will be an ebook as well. Absolutely. And do we have a target release date yet? The eight days, or I'm sorry, eight weeks after the initial deposit is made is uh, the quickest turnaround time for a publisher. Uh, we're about $415 away from the amount that we need for the initial deposit. So my goal is to you know, continue to share this, take pre-orders on the book, get that to the publisher, and as soon as we can get that into his hands, then we're, we're that much closer to having a release date for the book. Wow. Well, we're going to definitely support you here at Discover What's Inside. I appreciate that. Um, I urge everyone listening, you know, having support already, to definitely support this man. He's uh, on a mission, and yes. the message just needs to get out there. We need every person, man, boy, woman, girl, every race, I think this is going to help them and help the world. So I'm just happy to be able to help you get this message out there. Yeah, I appreciate you, and, man. Um, you know, the books are already the life changer for me. So I just want to thank you. So that's it. Thank you, DeAndre. Yeah, I appreciate that. Thank you, man. So give right. DeAndre a round of applause, everybody. Thank you.